Greetings, church. All right, Alan, we're going to try one more time. Greetings, church. There you go. I need you with me today, all right? Hey, we're in a sermon series called Following Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them to chapter 6. And here in a moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And we're going to see how Jesus impacted his hometown. And then we'll close our message and see how Jesus is impacting each one of us today. Before we get to our text, I'd like us to focus our hearts on current events and pray for the men and women and children that are being impacted by the war in the Ukraine. Uh, you may or may not know that several people from the PW location have served on mission trips in the Ukraine, and they have developed relationships, they've planted churches, and ministries have been started in the Ukraine from NBC and specifically from this location. My wife and I still remember our youngest daughter telling us that God placed on her heart to go serve the special needs community in the Ukraine. And so she went over there when uh, it still was not a uh, safe area. But again, when God moves on your child's heart, uh, we tend to uh, encourage our kids to actually obey uh, the Lord. So she went over there. And when she came back, she was even more passionate about serving those families, both locally and globally, that have special needs children. I can also share from personal experience that wars land on your heart differently when you know people on the battlefield. I know my wife prayed a lot, nearly over three decades when I served on battlefields, and we certainly pray differently now that our son is on battlefields. So it means something different when you actually know men and women that are impacted, including the children. And I can think of few things better than to go before the Lord and pray for his hand to protect, to restore, and really to bring people to a saving knowledge of him during these horrible things. So would you join me as we pray for the people involved? Father God, we come before you now, and we plead on behalf of the men, women, and especially the children that are being impacted by this horrible war. Father, my heart goes to the pastors who are serving in those regions, uh, both them and the men and the women in the local church, and I pray that you would equip them not only to meet physical needs, but that you would also uh, prepare them to share the hope they have in Christ. Father, may you do a great work in the lives of the people in the Ukraine. And Father, I know uh, that borders uh, do not stop you. And so, Father, I also want to lift up the pastors of uh, Bible-believing churches in Russia, where many refugees are fleeing to also because it's easier to get there. I pray that you would do a great work in their lives and that they would be able to minister to the men, women, and children coming to them. And again, as they meet physical needs, may you also allow them to meet spiritual needs. Father, I know hearts are broken and hearts are confused, and so I pray also that you would prepare moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and other people in the church to have challenging conversations with little ones who are confused about the current events. And ultimately, Father, uh, despite the swirl around us with media and all the other things going on, may we, as the body of Christ, remember that nothing catches you by surprise. You are sovereign. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you can make all things work for good. So, Father, I pray that many, many people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that this conflict would end soon. But ultimately, we pray that you would be glorified on earth as you are in heaven. And we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus, the church said. Amen, church. Okay, Mark 6. Let's take a look at verse 1 and we'll read through verses uh, 1 through 6. Here we go. This is the word of God. He went away from there, that is Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and among his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, I know many of you are not from this area, and occasionally you get the gift of going home and visiting your hometown. And I am also not from this area, and sometimes I get to go back to my home. And I want to paint a picture for you in case you're confused of how I'm portrayed when I go back home. For instance, my family remembers a five-year-old boy who almost burned down Grandpa's house when he was playing with fire in a bathroom. So my family's not impressed with me at all. And then my friends are not impressed either. Even though I might have been considered quite an athlete, there's only a couple things that I'm remembered for in the sports world. One, we had a slam dunk contest. And yes, once upon a time, I could jump up and actually slam dunk a basketball. But things were going kind of stalemate. We all were doing the same thing, so I thought I'd raise the ante. So being a teenage brain, and for you teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, right? I decided to climb on top of the backboard, and I stood up there, which is 12 feet in the or up in the air. I held the basketball, and I said, this is definitely the game winner here. And I jumped off, and I proved that gravity is real. And on the way down, I did make the slam dunk, but I also busted my jaw and broke both my wrists. And everybody screamed and left. I was in the gym by myself until a school nurse came by, packaged me up. That was back when a stranger could actually take you to the ER. And bless my mama's heart, she picked me up at the ER a lot. And there I was found. The other historic deed that I made in sports, and is still on the record books, is in football. I have been this size since junior high, and so I was able to accomplish quite a bit in my early years in football, including a record that still stands for the most penalties in one game. <laughs> I had 240 yards of penalties in one game, and I could expound upon it, and if you don't know football, just know that is a lot. <laughs> and then lastly, I wish I could tell you once I became a driver that things improved, but I also found out that if you jump railroad tracks with a car, you will blow out all four tires. So needless to say, I've got issues. And when I go home, no one's impressed with me. I'm a flawed sinner, and certainly the closer you get to me, you will realize that I have many issues. I am definitely a sinner saved by grace. And if you want to know what I pray before I preach, I pray the same thing every time. Dear Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have not lost that reality check. Now, all this to say that when it comes to Jesus, he was perfect. And when he went to his hometown, the more people knew about him, the more they could not find fault with him. But sadly, the people in Jesus' hometown showed contempt for Jesus regardless. Philip Brooks said it best, familiarity breeds contempt, only with contemptible things or among contemptible people. The contempt shown by the Nazarenes said nothing about Jesus Christ, but it said a great deal about them. 
It makes me mindful of an art exhibit story that I read one time where a young man cruised through this exhibit and he went hastily by all the art and then he said something to the guard in passing. He said, I didn't see anything impressive in there. And the security guard, being a steely-eyed veteran of the art exhibit, said, actually, it's not the art that is on trial here. It's the visitors. Our text reveals Jesus' second recorded and his last visit to his hometown, as far as we know. If you recall his first visit, it didn't go well at all. The account is documented in Luke 4, 16 through 30. And at first, the crowd was impressed by his teaching. He was bringing the word of God, and they loved it. But by the end of his sermon, do you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to murder him. Talk about a tough crowd. Regardless, Jesus returns, this time with his disciples in tow, to learn some valuable lessons. And we'll learn later that in verses 7 through 13, his followers will be sent out to live out all the examples they learned from Jesus Christ. Not only will they learn from the indifference response of Jesus' teaching and that that rejection will come sometimes, they will also learn rejection is not the end of the world and they must press on. As I was reflecting on our text this week, I thought it might be wise to encourage everyone listening, whether they're at home or here present, on how we view Jesus and how we respond to the maker of heaven and earth. So my encouragement to you is let's see who Jesus is truly in the word of God and let's not make him out to be something that we wish he is. Instead, let's see what scripture reveals about him. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 again, and let's discuss it. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now we find Jesus in his hometown, and we know that he was born in Bethlehem. And we also know that his parents were treated to Egypt for at least two years to keep him safe. And after that, mom and dad settled down in the little town of Nazareth. If you look at the map, you'll see the journey from Capernaum was roughly 25 miles, and this is where Jesus chose to minister out of when he started his ministry. No doubt having access to the water gave him greater access and more quickly to all the people around the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth was a small village on top of about a 1,200-foot climb, and it rested in a depression. The population is estimated to be anywhere from 300 to 500 max, and it took place in this little rocky outcrop of about 60 acres. If you look at the pic, you can see that the village was very rocky, and dig sites have revealed many little grottos in the area. And you may ask, what is a grotto? If you've watched The Hobbit, you can picture the Shire, these beautiful little homes made of dirt and grass. Now just picture them made of rock. That is Nazareth. They lived in little tiny caves. It is so obscure that it is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Mishnah never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud, and it's never mentioned by the first century historian Josephus. Because Nazareth was out of the way, news didn't travel there as fast as it did around the Sea of Galilee. And to make matters worse, there was a Roman garrison in the village with a bathhouse. Now, if you know much about Jewish history, the Jewish people avoided Gentiles, and as a result, Nazareth most likely heard news from Rome before they heard news from anywhere local. Yet despite this, 
news did reach this little village about Jesus and his ministry. Upon arrival, Jesus was invited to teach again, and considering how he's treated the first time, a lesser man may have passed that offer, but not our Jesus. He stepped up and he preached the word again. And at the end of this teaching, this word astonished means something in the modern language that their minds were blown away. They absolutely were blown away by the teaching. And at the close of his teaching, the locals asked five questions, which are in your text, and you can read those. But they say this, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are mighty works performed, done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? The people who knew Jesus back in the day called his teaching wise. When it came to the mighty works and miracles, there is a hint of the doubt of the source of his power, though. Notice they didn't deny the miracles taking place. Instead, they questioned if God is the source of the power. Consider the powerful miracles recorded in Mark up to this point. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Many more in Capernaum. And then a leper is healed. Then we realize that a paralyzed man is healed. And a man with a deformed hand is healed. Many again, we learn in chapter 3, then the storm and the sea, he calms. He healed the demonic and the woman who bled for 12 years, and then finally he raised from the dead Jairus' daughter, who had died. Even with these events known, the crowds that follow this up for the main reason of their doubt, the local crowds, I believe, really they were caught up on one thing, and it was that Jesus was a carpenter. The Greek word refers to one who constructs a worker with wood or stone, and for sure Jesus was a hard-working blue-collar man. No doubt about it. He worked hard, and in my opinion, his occupation also refutes the pasty white images of Jesus in flowing gowns and all the art and in Hollywood. Jesus definitely was a man's man, and he looked like he worked those 30 years before he started his ministry. As a carpenter, he did not come from the right class of people to be a teacher. He didn't have a rabbi teach him, and he didn't spend all those years in Jerusalem training. You can almost hear the people saying, if this is the Messiah who's going to save us, he couldn't be a carpenter. He's just like the rest of us. This, of course, is but only one way Jesus offends humans' understanding. The Old Testament, I believe, gives us a beautiful glimpse on how God works in simple ways and how it offends the pride of mankind. 2 Kings 5 is a beautiful story about Naaman. Naaman was a great Syrian general, and he had leprosy. And he heard about the great God of Israel, and he decided that he was going to go to this great God and ask for healing from his prophet Elijah and be healed. So he did what any man would do, thinking from earthly wisdom. He took everything that he had in order to get it done. He took a whole lot of money. In a sense, he took his resume. He brought all the letters of recommendation from the king and the prime minister. In other words, he knew how to get the interview and get the job done. He brought the money. He brought the resume. He brought the recommendations. He brought everything, and he even brought a sword just in case God demanded a mighty deed done to get this miracle. But when he gets there, Elijah doesn't even come to the door. Instead, he sends his servant and says, go wash in the river seven times of Jordan. Naaman is furious. And in tremendous anger, he leaves the prophet's house. All the servants go after him saying, master, master, now why are you so upset? Why are you so upset? He's offended by the simplicity of God's prescription. In other words, 
Are you saying, says Naaman, my money doesn't mean anything? My power and my accomplishments mean nothing? Any idiot can wash in the Jordan River. Anybody can wash in the Jordan River. It doesn't make any difference. Are you trying to say I'm on the same level as everyone else? That's exactly what God is saying to Naaman. But the simplicity of God's offer, the graciousness of it, levels him. Basically, he says, just go wash in the Jordan River. He knows what that means. It means the vilest sinner, as well as an upright and moral citizen as himself, can get clean. Everybody is on the same level. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody is lost. And everybody can be saved only through sheer grace equally. And he hated that. Do you know why? It offended him. You know why it offended him? Because it offended his pride. You may be here today exploring Christianity. And if you are, I'm so glad you are. Did you realize the Bible makes it very clear that God created you and me to be with him? He loves us. He cares about us. But the Bible also makes it very clear that our sin separates us from a holy God. And to make matters worse, it's painted very clearly, our sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Matter of fact, the Bible makes a strong statement that says our very best works are like filthy rags to a holy God. So what do we do? Well, in fact, you and I can't do anything. That's why God sent his son Jesus to be born as a baby, to live that perfect life that we read about in Scripture, no sin, and then what does he do? He goes to the cross on your behalf and mine, and he dies. Let that sink in. He dies for you. But God doesn't leave him in the grave. Three days later, he raises him from the dead. And the best news of all that I love sharing with every man, woman, and boy and girl I meet is everyone. And that means everyone who places their faith and trust in what Jesus has done can have eternal life. And that eternal life can begin today. You know what's cool about 2 Kings 5? As much as Naaman pitched a fit, he took God up on the offer and he was healed from his leprosy. And I pray today that some of you all of you that are searching will take God up on his offer also. He loves you, and it's time to come home. Back to our text. If you don't know Jewish culture in the first century, you might read Son of Mary as something sweet and innocent. But sadly, it was derogatory in nature. The common practice among Jews was to use the father's name, whether he was alive or dead. The only reason a man was called the son of his mother was if the father was unknown. When Joseph and Mary settled in Nazareth, the story of their unusual pregnancy no doubt caused plenty of gossip in their little village. And a side note, along with the four brothers that's mentioned here, the two sisters, because their names are not mentioned in Jewish culture, uh, tends to make us think that they were married. So something just to know. This leads, though, to an important statement at the close of verse 3. And they took offense at him. The Greek term is scandalizo, where we get our English word scandal. The way it is used here describes deliberately placing a hazard on a path to cause another great injury or even death. The hometown crowd wasn't just offended as one who becomes angry. They completely missed who Jesus Christ was and is. So consider a few counterpoints of observation from another group who absolutely know, absolutely know who Jesus Christ is from the gospel of Mark so far. Follow along with me. In chapter 1, verse 24, a demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in verse 27, the crowd says, what is this, a new teaching with authority? In chapter 1, verse 34, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
Chapter 2, verse 7, a scribe says, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Chapter 3, verse 11, unclean spirits cried out, You are the Son of God. And in chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples said, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in 5, 7, a demon says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And then we find our local crowd in chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? In short, you might say the people of Nazareth refused to believe anything they couldn't experience with their five senses, so they rejected Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you something that maybe you haven't thought about. There is more to life than what you can see, what you can smell, what you can taste, what you can hear, and what you can feel. There's an invisible world. And if you live in the area of just appearance, what you see, you are just living in the visible world. And I'll tell you what the motto of Nazareth was. What you see is what you get. You might say they would make good people to dwell in the state of Missouri, the show-me state. Unless they could see it, they wouldn't believe it. But friend, what you don't see is what you get. By faith, what you don't see is what you get. Do you know there's an invisible world? The Bible says in Colossians that in him were all things created, both visible and invisible. Colossians 1, verse 16. It's a matter of fact. The Bible also says in Hebrews eleven three 3, that all things were made by things which do not appear. That is, the invisible was here before the visible. And the visible was made by the invisible. And the invisible will be here after everything else is gone. And finally, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Apostle Paul said this is the way to live, by looking not at the things which are seen, but by the things which are seen, or not seen. How can you look at things which are not seen? Paul did. Have you seen the invisible? The people at Nazareth couldn't do it. All they could see was the visible. And so, since they lived by appearance, their faith was shrunken, and Jesus could do no mighty works there. Leads us to verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So due to their unbelief, Jesus commented with a proverb in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we witness something very sad. Jesus could do no mighty work there. But what does that mean? Clearly God is all-powerful, yet something kept Jesus from doing miracles in Nazareth. Because the people chose to reject Jesus and not have faith in him, their lack of trust in Jesus as the Messiah was a limitation. Put another way, Jesus' power was not limited. His purpose was limited. What is the purpose of miracles? To attest to the truth. If you've rejected the truth, there's no need for miracles. Consider, perhaps you've discovered a spoiled child in your life, and you've seen one on occasion. No parent in their right mind is going to give good gifts to a child pitching a tantrum until that behavior is corrected. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's not going to perform miracles in the same way a loving parent won't give a rebellious child a gift until the behavior is corrected. And this brings us to our last and perhaps the saddest verse of all, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
And he went about among the villages teaching. Did you realize only twice in the gospel record you will find Jesus marveling? As our passage reveals, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the Jews in his hometown. Then on a positive in Luke 7, verse 9, we read that Jesus also marveled about the great faith of a Roman centurion who was a Gentile. Jesus is perplexed, but he's not paralyzed by their unbelief, and he continues to teach in the other villages and towns. There could not have been many things at which Jesus could marvel. Think about it. There was nothing for him to marvel at in the stars. As awesome as they are, he knew them all by number, we learn in Psalm 147. And by name, we learn in Isaiah 40. There was nothing for him to marvel at either in that which awed the psalmist at the amazing complexity of our physical bodies in Psalm 139. He made us himself and he understands fully the nature of a human cell and even the complexity of our DNA. And there was nothing for him to marvel at in our human spiritual blindness. He knew far better than anyone the totality of the fall. He had known Adam before and after the fall. What made Jesus marvel was their unbelief. The ultimate disaster of unbelief is that it closes out a person from God. That means you are left to yourself. So how foolish is unbelief? Unbelief chooses Satan, unbelief chooses sin, and unbelief chooses hell over heaven. This is why Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Question, I wonder if you see yourself in the passage today. Having served in churches for over four decades, meaning at least 30 of them I've served as a volunteer, like many of you, and then the last decade serving here at NBC, I see at least three groups in this text. First, we see the disciples. These are pure followers of Jesus who listen and drink in every word of his teaching. Because they're human, they're going to often fail. And they're going to misunderstand things, yet they accept God's word. I think of our brother and sister today sharing their testimony. We know followers of Christ share in all manners of suffering uh, of mankind, including natural disasters, sickness, family brokenness, poverty, and accidents. We are not immune to such things. What Jesus gives his followers is God's presence during such tragedies, including the unending hope of true transformation and redemption. In the context of such trust, however, exact circumstances and outcomes are not guaranteed. A wonderful source of hope for the followers of Jesus is to be mindful of him whom they follow and serve, the triune and living creator of this universe. The eternal son, as a member of the triune God, shelters and leads his people even in circumstances of deep grief and much oppression. Because Jesus had paid the price for human rebellion and has been victorious over the power of Satan and death, his disciples may rest in him during this life and in death. This holds true whether or not God perseveres the physical body of the life of his followers. And if you see yourself as a disciple to say, and you're a committed follower of Jesus, I want to thank you. You'll never know how grateful I am as one of your pastors to see your walk with Christ. Your heart to serve and love God and love others gives me strength on dark and difficult days in ministry. And I'll also say that there's a great test, by the way, to see if you are a disciple of Christ. If you haven't, or I should say, if you're a disciple and you haven't offended anybody by your walk, it's time to examine it to make sure uh, that your walk with God and make sure you're not running a life that's covert instead of overt. Nowhere are we to run as Christian coverts. 
We are to be over and let the world know that we are followers of Christ. But before you celebrate as one who offends others often, and many of you have that spiritual gift from what I hear, I must warn you that if you're always in conflict and you always feel like others are picking on you for your faith, you most likely are not being picked on for righteousness sake. Instead, you're most likely being picked on because you're obnoxious. Let that settle in. And I can assure you that the gospel on its own is obnoxious enough. We don't need to add our personalities to it. There is a second group here, and this group wouldn't call themselves committed, but curious. You haven't rejected the gospel, and you are still reflecting and searching. To be honest, you have doubts and questions that need answers, and my charge to you as I meet people that are skeptics and still asking questions is to stay with it. I also want to caution you, please don't wait until you have all your questions answered. Did you realize even followers of Christ have questions? The more you examine the word of God, it leads to questions. And did you know the Bible can stand up to your questions? The Bible has been asked some really hard and difficult questions for several thousand years, and it still stands. So I challenge you and I encourage you, keep asking those questions. And then there's the last group. And those are closed off and sadly very critical. This group of men and women believe all the problems rest on those who believe or on the object of their faith, who is Jesus Christ. Rarely will this group consider that the problem may lie with them. I've learned that when you address a critic's question, they will move to their next surprise question instead of listening to the truth shared. When I served as a SEAL instructor in Coronado, California, I had a pretty honorary teammate uh, who was a critic. And every day he would assault me with questions. Over and over he would hit me up with the doozies from what's the pH of the dinosaur bone at 3,000 feet to you name it. Like he had some doozies. And frankly, I didn't have an answer for all his questions. But I still prayed for him. And I asked that God would save him. And you know what God did for this man who was a critic? He wrecked him. He wrecked him. He went out on his Harley one day, speeding down the road, had a wreck, disfigured his face, and he got into a very deep depression. And it was in that moment of depression where we put a suicide watch on him because he was in such despair that he got radically saved. And then this critic who picked on me relentlessly became my young Timothy, and then he asked me questions every day looking for answers to the point where he wore me out that way too. But it was so refreshing. And then he would bring 20 other people with him, other instructors that were SEALs, and then they would be critics, and they had questions because he would get them all spooled up, and he didn't know how to answer them. But even today, he still loves the Lord, and he's still following God some almost 30 years later. I share this to say I've observed that the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God who came to us as a baby. Later, as a carpenter, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died in our place to prove that he had power over the grave and was raised to life three days later in order that we could have a relationship with him. Today, I would love to invite you who are critics and curious to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I promise you, it'll be the best decision you ever make. I also promise you, it doesn't mean your life will be easier, but it will have meaning, it will have purpose, and you will have hope, hope that will never end. Today is a day to move from death to life and from unbelief to belief. Let's pray.
Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to open up your word. And Father, I do want to pray for the committed today, men and women and boys and girls who are followers of Jesus. Father, would you encourage their hearts? And would you strengthen their walk with you through your word and through this local church? And Father, would you remind them that we are not to live a life that's covert, but we are to be on display to a lost and dying world and point others to the hope we have in Christ. Father, please give them courage and help them to make a stand. But may they also remember that we are to share the truth in love. And Father, for the curious, oh, Father, would you bring them home today? I know there are so many questions to ask. And Father, I pray that they could simply place their faith and trust in you like a child. Oh, Father God, my heart still goes to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we would trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our understanding. And in all our ways, we would acknowledge you, knowing that you will make our path straight. Father, please help the curious to come to a saving knowledge of you today. And then, Father, for the critics here that are here in person and for those listening online, may you break their heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And may the seeds of the gospel land on fertile soil. And may they sprout to life. And may they learn that it is so important to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, as we continue in worship, may we be a people, may we be a church who profess that we believe in God the Father and that we believe in Jesus Christ and that we believe in the Holy Spirit and that he has given us new life. Father, may we be a church that believes in the crucifixion. May we believe that he conquered death and may we believe in the resurrection and knowing that Jesus one day is coming back again. Father, we believe. May you be pleased now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen, church.